It's great to be here with you this morning on this Sunday to worship God together. My name is Brent. I am one of the elders here at Christ Community Church, and we're happy to have you here with us to worship God with us this morning. We are in a series called The Summer in the Psalms. It is a, a summer of, of looking at the Psalms and reading through the Psalms and looking to understand them and how they can help us as Christians. And if you haven't done so yet, I know John and the staff here have done just a tremendous job putting together a booklet uh, to walk through the Psalms together with us this summer. It's available for you on the back table over there. And it is a, just a great resource for you to use as we preach uh, through these Psalms over the summer. And we're getting close to the end here, uh, but it's still a great resource even to pick up even today and to use it on your own time. Uh, and, you know, in that booklet, one of the things that they, John does a great job explaining is, is the use of psalms. How, how do we use these psalms in our daily lives? And he explains how the psalms are a great source to learn how to pray effectively, to pray to the God that we worship, and to reflect on the truths that we know in, in real practical ways. It's, it's a really helpful tool, an important tool, to conform us into the image of God. And as we deal with issues even today of good and evil, how we handle those issues in practice is so important. It's so important. And the Psalms help us do that. You know, a lot of times people come to a pastor, they'll come to an elder, and they'll talk and they'll ask about uh, in questions of information. You know, what does the Bible say about this? Or, you know, tell me about this character in the Bible, this person. You know, who, who, is, who is that? Many times they also come with intellectual questions, questions dealing with, you know, tell me what does the Bible say about this issue, about this doctrine? What do we believe about this? And those are important questions, questions of information and questions of intellect, of thinking through deep issues are really important, but they're not our only problem. They are not our only problem. Yesterday I was talking to my wife and she showed me a Facebook post that I thought was was pretty funny. Someone of her friends had posted it, and here's what the Facebook post said. It said, before the internet, it was thought that the collective foolishness of mankind was due to a lack of information. Now we know that is not true, right? Now we know that is not true. Our only problem is not a lack of information, and it's not a lack of intellect. We have another serious problem that we have to contend with, and it's an emotional problem. We have serious emotional problems that, that come out in the way that we live our lives and the way that we interact with one another. And let me try to uh, uh, illustrate it this way. I think it's, it's, this is a good illustration of that. I'm a sucker for those videos that you see of soldiers coming home and, being, and surprising their family. I don't know. You've probably seen a few of those. They're great. They're wonderful. All right. And they illustrate something that's really important. You know, I want you to imagine a family whose, whose significant other or whose father or whose mother has been deployed for nine months, okay? They're, they're, they're away. They haven't seen each other in a long time. Now, you can tell that family, well, they're going to come home soon. You can give them information. You know, they're going to arrive on August 10th. You can tell them and explain to them all you want, well, they'll be here in just a few weeks, but that's not going to heal the ache that they feel in their heart. 
It's not until that moment when, when you know, the, the father or the mother walks off the plane or surprises them at the football stadium for their game or uh, is, shows up at their school or, or comes home when they weren't expecting it. When you see them rushing together and experiencing that moment of reunification that suddenly the pain goes away, the loss disappears. Because all of our questions, all of our problems are not just intellectual problems. They're problems of experience, problems of emotion that we need to deal with. And today as we read through Psalm 73, I want to make it clear that that's the problem that's really being addressed by Psalm 73. You see, the Psalms give us really practical, experiential tools to help with those pains that we feel in life. And we're going to look at and see how a man named Asaph deals with his emotional pain, deals with his problem. See, Asaph is a Levite, he's a priest in Israel, and he has a problem. And as we read Psalm 73, as we look at that together, I want to find out what his problem is. Psalm 73 begins like this, "'Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart.'" But, as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. Why? Why had Asaph nearly stumbled? Why had he nearly slipped? Why had he nearly failed to believe that God is actually good? Here it is, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. You see, Asaph has a problem, and his problem is envy. He feels this deep sense of envy towards the arrogant and the wicked. Now, what is envy? Well, it comes from the Latin word. The word envy comes from the Latin word invidia, which means technically blindness. It's a kind of blindness. Now, that's going to become important in just a little bit, but before we get there, let me give you a a little bit clearer definition. Envy is this. It's resentment at the good blessing or success of others. The good, the some kind of superior quality that they have to us, something that they are better at than us. Maybe they look better. Maybe they're smarter but they have some good that we want. Blessing, maybe they received some good fortune, maybe they won the lottery or they they just, something fell into their lap that they weren't working for, but they, they got it and we didn't, or some success. Maybe they just earned something and we can't earn that like they can. We can't work as hard as they can. We are not as talented as they are, so we didn't get it and we're envious of it. That's what envy is. And to, to kind of highlight it, to kind of make the point a little bit more clear, envy essentially is the opposite of praise. See, if I'm envious, those good things, those blessings, those successes make me resentful. But if I don't have envy, I can see all those things in someone else, and I can praise those characteristics. I can praise their beauty I can praise their talent. I can praise their good fortune. 
that they receive and their successes. Envy is the opposite of praise. Now, I'm going to give you a quick test. Maybe it may help you think about this a little bit clearer. A couple of weeks ago, Jess and I went to her 20th high school reunion. And of course, if you've ever been to a high school reunion of that kind or any kind of reunion where you're seeing people who you used to go to school with or, or used to work with or whatever the case might be, you know that a lot of what goes on there is a sizing up. You know, how, how do they look these days? What are they doing these days? What's going on with you? What's new with you? What successes have you had? Those are the questions that are on everybody's mind when you're at one of those events. Now, imagine for a second that you went to a reunion like that. And as you were there, one of the things that you discovered is that everybody looked better than you. Everyone had far more interesting lives than you did. You know, they all live in, in Colorado on some mountaintop. And all of them are successful. They've all cured cancer. And you're the only one who hasn't. You're you. <laughs> I'm me. Okay? Imagine how you'd feel. Okay? W- would your first instinct be to be like, wow, I went to school with a bunch of amazing people. That's awesome. Or would that immediate sense be a an, sense of inadequacy, that you're inadequate? If you answer it that way, which I think most of us would, we have a problem with envy. We have a problem with envy. Now, let's see. Let's look and see what Asa's problem is. Who is he complaining about? Who is he envious of? He's already told us it's the arrogant, it's the wicked. But let's see how he describes them, beginning in verse 4. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. I love that description right there. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens. Their tongues strut through the earth. The people who he is describing, they have no troubles in life, so it seems. They, they don't suffer the consequences like other people do, it seems like. It seems like they can get away with anything. They look beautiful. They have these, you know, I guess it used to be beautiful to be fat, you know. I guess I'm not beautiful in any age, but that's fine. Pride, bullies, they threaten oppression, they threaten violence, their eyes swell out. I love that language. It's, it's, it's the image of a person who is constantly looking for more. They have an insatiable appetite, and you know what? They always seem to get what they want. They're extravagant and wasteful, foolish in what they do. And the way they speak, the way they speak, they're scoffers. Malice characterizes their speech. They're bullies, they're arrogant. They're so arrogant, they even speak against the heavens. They blaspheme God. Their tongue 
struts around the earth. Who is he describing? Who is he describing? It's people we know, right? People we know. The cool kids at school, the the jocks who who tormented maybe the, the nerdier kids, right? Maybe the fraternity guys at, at college, or the sorority girls, the mean girls, the ones who hazed and who gossiped about other people and tore them down, right? Maybe it's the type A personality at work, the guy who gets ahead at the expense of other people, or the Wall Street hedge fund manager who became a billionaire during the downturn off the backs of people who all lost their jobs. Or the CEO who gets paid the million-dollar parachute package when the company goes under. The movie star, the musician, the, the, the athlete maybe who lives a life of just wantonness and, and uh, promiscuity and, and drugs and alcohol. And he seems to get away with it. Or the prosperity preacher, the guy in his suit with his jet and who lives in his mansion, who is actually just preying off the envy of other people, who sees their envy, who knows their envy, and who is using it to say, hey, but if you do, if you give money to me, I'll show you how to be like me and all those other people that you're really envious of. Or the politician, the demagogue. Now, I almost thought if Verse 8, which says, you know, they scoff and speak with malice. I almost thought that maybe if I dug down deep into that, the Hebrew word there, it might say they scoff and they tweet malice, you know. And I'd be able to hold this book up and say, see, fulfilled prophecy right there, right? But that's where we are, isn't it? We all know the people. And ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you this. There's a real problem here. I talked about how Asaph has an emotional problem, but underneath that emotional problem is a real intellectual problem. There's a real problem. Why do the wicked seem to prosper and the righteous seem to suffer? Why is that? That's an important question. And we'll get to that in a minute. There's going to be an answer to that question in this sermon, I promise you. But first, it's the next few verses that really highlight the emotional state of Asaph. That really gets to the heart of his emotional problem. And we read this in verse 10. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. See, one of the things that really gets to Asaph is this. It's not that these people just prosper financially. It's that the whole world seems to go after them. The whole world seems to love them. The whole world seems to want to be like them. They're going after these wicked people. That really gets to Asaph on that one. And here's why. It's the next 
two verses. All in vain I have kept my heart clean. This is what this is him speaking. And washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. That's Asa's problem. You see, the whole world is going after the wicked, these people who he cannot stand. But what about him? He views himself as being clean, as being good. Why aren't they coming after me? Why don't I prosper? Why don't I get rich? Why don't the people follow me? See, at the end of the day, he's envious that the people are following the wicked and not him. He wants that attention. You know, envy is the least fun of all the sins. Envy is the least fun of all the sins. You know, we talk about some of the other sins, and, and some of them, they at least promise you something, don't they? All the other sins promise you something that, at least at first glance, seems like it'll be pleasurable. Lust, you know, you can think of lust and you can think, well, there, you can at least have a lot of fun at the beginning with lust, right? Gluttony, at least you can enjoy a lot of good food along the way. Sloth, there's, there's my favorite motto when it comes to sloth. Hard work sometimes pays off in the future. Laziness always pays off right now, right? Pride, there is a lot of pleasure in fooling other people and yourself that you've got it all together. There's a lot of pleasure in that, in pretending that you're good, in pretending that you're perfect. There's a lot of pleasure in that sin, but not in envy. Envy only steals. Envy only harms. It only sucks the joy out of everything else. A couple of examples. Think of kids. You know, we have kids in here. How many parents have, have when they have two or more kids, say, well, if I'm going to buy a gift for this child, I've got to get gifts for the others, right? And usually it's the same gift because the moment I give one gift to one child, the child that I give a different gift to, he's going to look at that gift and say, well, I wanted that, right? Here he has his own perfectly good gift, his own perfectly good toy, and he hates it because it's not that one, right? That's envy. I want what they have. I'm not happy with what I have, even though I've received something good. That's envy. And you don't have to look at just kids, you can look at adults. How many of us have gone on vacation this summer and said, oh, what a wonderful vacation. Get away, out of the grind of the daily life, and then we jump on Facebook and see where everybody else has gone, right? And suddenly our vacation doesn't seem that great anymore. Or how about Adam and Eve and trees? Here they are in a garden, in a paradise that God has given to them, and they have every tree from which to choose except one. And Satan comes along and he says, you can't have that one. You might as well not be able to have any of the trees in the garden. 
And there Adam and Eve saying, we want to know good and evil like God does. And for envy, there's a great sucking sound of all the joy being drained out of the world. And God says, you want to know evil like me? All right. You've known me and I've given you good, all the trees in the garden. You want to know evil? That great sucking sound is you getting to know evil. Envy sucks all of the joy out of everything. It's the least fun of all the sins. And that is Asaph's problem. That's his problem. So Asaph continues and he says, you know, he at least realizes he's got an issue here. He says, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed a wearisome task. You see, Asaph has a dilemma. He knows that, look, if I had followed after all these wicked people like everyone else, like it seems like that's the right thing to do like everyone else is doing, then I would have betrayed my people. I know I can't follow after them like everyone else, but you know what? I also have another problem. If I complain, if I complain, then I just demonstrate my own self-pity. He's got a problem. And so the question is, what does he pick? Does he follow after the wicked like everyone else? Or does he complain? And the answer is neither. It's, at the, it's there in verse 17. He has this problem until I went into the sanctuary of God. See, the answer to Asa's problem is this. It's worship. The answer to his emotional problem is worship. It is the worship of God, the experience of God, that heals the emotional wounds that we have. We go to the sanctuary. The cure for envy, for this blindness that we have, is a vision of God. It's worship. And once we worship, we see and experience God, then we're in a place to deal with the intellectual questions. Once Asaph goes into the sanctuary, then he sees something. He sees the end of the wicked. He sees the end of the wicked. He sees this in verse 18. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall into ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment. Swept away utterly by tears. Like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. You see, what Asaph sees when he goes into and worships God is he sees this. God is the judge. And he does not clear 
the wicked. In good time, God will rouse Himself and He will act. He will judge. The language here is so vivid. It will be a terrible day for the wicked. They will lose everything. They'll suffer. You see, suffering, this is important. This is important. This, it, it, I want to be clear here. I, I've been talking about the emotional issue that Asaph has. This is the intellectual answer. Once he looks up into heaven, he sees, okay, God is the judge, and He will not clear the wicked. He will judge them, and they will lose everything. They will suffer. And one of the things you must realize about suffering is that suffering is always the loss of the good things that God gives to us. That's what suffering is. We suffer because God has given to us good things and we lose them. We miss them. We have tasted the goodness of God and then He has taken it away. And that loss, that emptiness is suffering. And the wicked will suffer the loss of everything. One of the questions that people ask when they are going through suffering is the very important question, is God still good? The proof that God is still good in the midst of suffering is the knowledge it's there implicit in the question itself that we've lost something that's good. We've lost something that God has given to us. That's why we're suffering. In James 1.17, James says this, God gives us all good things. All good and perfect gifts come down from above from our Father. At the beginning of this psalms, Asaph confesses God is good to Israel. God is the good. And to suffer ultimately is to lose Him forever, to miss out on Him. And what Asaph is describing here when he sees the wicked and their ultimate end is that, yeah, God has given them many good things in this life, the wicked receive good things, but they never possessed goodness. They never had God. And as a result, they will suffer the loss of all things. And it's that change of perspective that helps him overcome his emotional issue, his emotional problem, his envy. The, the quintessential examples of this in the Bible is Pharaoh, right? What, is, what does God say about Pharaoh? For this reason I have raised you up. I have made you the most powerful man in all the world. You are wealthy beyond anyone's imagination so that I might show my power in you. And in a moment, Pharaoh, as he is chasing the Israelites through the Red Sea, is swept away and he loses everything. Or how about a few months ago when John was preaching through Acts and he talked about Herod. Herod 
is standing in front of the crowd and he is proclaiming himself a God and the next moment it's all over. And everything that he thought he had built, all the things that he thought he had accomplished are gone in a moment. That's what Asaph sees. It's an intellectual answer that helps us to understand and deal with the emotional one. But I have often been accused, and rightly so, I've been accused of this by by very credible sources of trying to get too quickly to intellectual answers and not helping people with the emotional problems, with the emotional issues. You see, because we do have emotional needs, what we need most of the time are good friends to come alongside us and to sit with us, right? To buy us a tub of ice cream or a good beer, to sit with us and to slowly but faithfully draw us back to worship. And if we jump too quickly to the intellectual response, we'll miss the emotional need that we have, which can only be dealt with by an experience of God Himself. We need to feel His arms around us before we can understand what He's saying to us. So, after Asaph enters the sanctuary, he comes to an important conclusion about himself as well. He says this, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Now, I want you to look at these verses and contrast them with what he had said just a few verses earlier. He was singing this song, all in vain I kept my heart clean and I washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Woe is me, look how good I am compared to all these other people who seem to be getting good things. Now that Asaph has seen God, Now that he has looked up instead of at the people around him, here's his actual response. Here's what he knows about himself. When my soul was embittered, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. See, now that Asaph has seen God, he knows that I am just like the wicked. I'm just like them. I deserve the same fate as they do. His envy, at the end of the day, reveals an enormous lack of gratitude towards God. And what Asaph begins to realize is that he had had God with him all along. Inasmuch as the wicked had all of these good things that Asaph wanted, Asaph had good itself. And he says this in verse 23, nevertheless, I'm continually with you. Why is he continually with God? Is it because of Asa's own doing? 
Is it because of His own strength? No. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will receive me. See, Asaph comes to realize that God holds us. He holds our right hand as if we were His children, because we are. He guides us. He counsels us. And when the wicked look at their lives, what they say is, look at all that I have accomplished. Look at all that I have done. Stop. Period. And what the righteous end up saying all of the time is, look at what God has done for me. And look at what God has accomplished through me. That's why in 1 Corinthians 15.10, it's Paul, the Apostle Paul, who says this, I worked harder than all the rest, yet not I, but Christ who works in me. That's what the righteous say. They realize that any good that they've done, any good that they've received has been a gift from God. Has been something that God has given to them. You know, one of the stories that you'll probably remember is the story of the prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal son. And what Asaph is dealing with here isn't, it's very similar to the issue that the older brother deals with in that parable. You remember the parable? One son goes to his father, gets his inheritance, goes off to a foreign land and lives completely wickedly, spending his inheritance, wasting what his father had given to him, and then he comes home. And what does the father do? He runs out, he kills the fatted calf, he throws a party, gets a feast ready for his wayward, wicked son. And there's the older brother who's standing outside the party, and the father comes to him and asks him, why aren't you coming in? And the son says, I have been with you all of this time, and you've never done this for me. I haven't received what he's receiving. That, wicked, that terrible person. And the father says, what? You've always been here with me. You've always had a seat at my table. And the thing that's left hanging in that parable is the question of whether that older brother is going to come to the same realization that Asaph has here. How good he's always had it. How good God has always been to him. So Asaph concludes this way. Whom am I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everything, everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of your works forever. 
after seeing the fleeting nature of the prosperity of the wicked, that wealth, health, and the adulation of the crowd passes like the wind, he acknowledges, he confesses that God and God alone is the only thing worth having. That's his confession. It's like the old hymn. You remember the old hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, Look Full in His Wonderful Face, Worship Him, and then what happens? And the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. See, having turned our eyes upon Jesus, we proclaim His works. The answer to the problem of evil, the real answer to the problem of evil, isn't an intellectual one only. It isn't just an intellectual answer that you can give to somebody in a few simple sentences. It's not merely intellectual, it's a person. You see, for three days, it seemed like a very strong possibility that the wicked would win that the wicked would prosper ultimately. For three days, as Jesus was tried, as He was crucified, and as He laid in the grave, it seemed as if the wicked would prevail. But on the third day, the righteous man who had suffered rose from the grave. In Christ we have a future. In Christ, we know that the righteous ultimately prevail, and it's only through Christ that we can be made righteous. With that information, I want to conclude here with this. I want to bring us back to the question of envy, and I want to ask this question. Why do we need to deal with our envy? Why do we need to deal with our envy? I've got three reasons why we need to deal with it, and then I want to give you a few tips on how to deal with it. And here it is. The first reason why we need to deal with it is because it's hidden. You know, over the five or six years that I've been in in pastoral ministry, I've had a lot of people come to me with with questions, you know, things that that we can talk about, intellectual questions. Uh, I've done a lot of counseling over the issue of lust and failed marriages, and those are really important. But ladies and gentlemen, I guarantee you that on a day-to-day basis, the issue that most of us deal with more frequently than any of those is the issue of envy. It's just hidden. It's hidden because we live in a society that promotes it, from social media to marketing, everything is appealing to your sense of envy, that you don't have what your neighbor has. And that's why this is so important, especially for a church like this, in the Woodlands, Magnolia, Conroe, uh, Montgomery area, wherever we, we live, is that that's the culture that we live in, a culture that compares each other to one another. And day in and day out, I will guarantee you that envy is a significant struggle for most of us. And that's a problem. 
because it's so damaging. It's so damaging and it sucks the joy out of everything that God has given to us. You know, if we probably looked back throughout history, if most cultures throughout history looked at our culture and the great benefits that we enjoyed as a people that I get to enjoy here in Texas, in this area, they would probably look at us and say a lot of the things that Asa said about the wicked. Look at their prosperity. Look at their insatiable appetite. Look at all the things that they get to enjoy because they were working day to day just for their daily bread. And look at all that we have to enjoy. But I guarantee you that we don't have joy any greater than any other generation because of envy. We're not comparing ourselves to any of them. We're just comparing ourselves to the people around us. And it's doing damage to us, and it's sucking our joy, and it's showing an incredible amount of ingratitude towards God. But here's the third reason why we need to deal with envy. Because it really, at the end of the day, shows us what we worship, what we want. Envy tells us a lot about the ultimate desires of our heart. And if we are constantly envying what other people have, it tells us a great deal about who we are and what we really want. It shows us what we really worship. And so here's how we deal with it. The first thing we must do with our envy is confess it. And that's why the Psalms are so good. That's why they are so good as a practical guide for how we conform ourselves to the image of Christ, because that's what Asaph does. He confesses his envy. He gives it to God. He's brutally honest about how he sees other people, and he confesses it. The second thing we must do is enter his sanctuary. We have to worship. We have to stop looking around at other people. And we have to look up. We have to look at God and worship and glory in who He is, marvel at who He is, understand who He is and what He has promised. And we must worship Him. And finally, we must be grateful. We must proclaim His works all of the time and share the gospel. And proclaim the gospel. That's how we deal with our envy. Is by looking to Christ and proclaiming His goodness to the world around us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we look to You and Your goodness. You are good. And oh, the great things that You constantly give us. Heavenly Father, when we suffer, when we go through difficult times, may you surround us with people who are good friends and who point us to you, who remind us of your goodness, and who encourage us to seek you. Help us, Lord, to stop looking around us, to stop comparing ourselves to other people but to look to You, to look to Your Son, 
When we compare ourselves to Him, Lord, we know our unworthiness, but we also know what He's done for us, how He saved us, and Your promise to one day conform us into His image. And we pray that You will do that, that You will remind us of that often so that we can get rid of our envy, live in gratitude towards You, and proclaim Your works throughout all the earth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.